Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Alina. I'm one of the writers at Clapper and today I'm happy to be joined by our editor-in-chief, Jack Luke Sharp, Ewan Cleto, and Diego Andaluz. On today's episode, we are discussing Aaron Sorkin's newest directorial outing, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Rada Blank's Sundance hit, The 40-Year-Old Version, and Jim Cummings's new horror comedy, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Let's start with The Wolf of Snow Hollow. John, it's another young woman. John, they're saying there's a big bear, big jaw. No, it's a man. When do I get to be right about something? The canine's lower mandible. That's what they're get saying. Get him on the phone. I'm not listening to I got to him on the phone. I'm telling you what they're saying. Hey, you can't park that here. You can't park that here. We need you 500 feet away at least. The crime scene. Just park up Elm Street. I got Monica Bravo out here. Who's call the news? No, no, you talk to me once, okay? A small town sheriff is tasked with solving a series of brutal murders that are occurring on the full moon while struggling to remind himself that there's no such thing as werewolves. Do you want to start, Ewan? Yeah, I can do. I think I'm the only one that's seen it, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I like Jim Cummins as a director and as a performer. I thought uh, Thunder Road, his debut feature, was really good. I thought that had a lot of stylistic choices that we hadn't seen before, and The Wolf of Snow Hollow has those, but not not in anything that seems innovative or original. It's just sort of there. And it's 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 not used in a way that seems like it would benefit Cummings. It's fine. It, it's completely like it, I, I don't want to say mediocre. That sounds too harsh, but it it is. It's sort of it has its performances. It has the right amount of uh, writing. It, it's consistent for the most part. It's a very slow burner. But th- there's just some something off about it. I don't know. It's. <laughs> His direction has gone from being really unique and innovative and really interesting to just sort of, you know, not very good. It's very bland at times. There's some pacing issues. There's some good performances, though. I think Cummins has always been a good performer, and he's in this. And uh, Robert Forster's inclusion is brief, but good enough to, you know, be a good performance. But other than that, I think it's surprisingly underwhelming. I haven't um, I haven't seen the film, so I just need to like sort of pre-emphasize with that. But um, I haven't seen Thunder Road either. But just from sort of like collecting my thoughts and sort of briefly reading the synopsises for, for either one of them, um, it's strange. If I think if you if you showed these two films to to any sort of random film fa- fan, you'd probably sort of get the, this response where Jim Cummings is a seasonal a director, a journeyman who's made something like this as, as almost like a a break or a brief hiatus to get away from the studio system. I feel it's a really strange film for him to make as a sophomore feature. Um, I don't know. I think the Thunder Road from what I've seen and what I've read, it's a very sort of intimately brooding horror show, like an internal destruction, if you will, you know, namely categorizing it as a, as a police officer makes that probably more poignant um, on a, on a repeat viewing. But this just seems to be sort of like all over the place uh, regarding what what it is, I mean, it's a comedy horror thriller about werewolves. I don't know. I think for for on the surface, this feels like one of those A twenty four films, like Slice, Chance the Rapper, where you know they just make something so niche and so uh, I don't know to suit a certain market, and it comes out and it's so cheap, it's so under budget, and it just doesn't meld together. Right? And I don't. I, I obviously I haven't seen the film, so I don't want to put those two in the same bracket. I think Slice is is a disaster on, on on more ways than one, but. I don't know, I just feel like Jim Cummings as a director is a very strange film for him to sort of 
go forward with. And in that regard, I also find it quite strange that he's a, he, he performs as a central lead in both of his films, which I suppose is a is an interesting element to behold. Maybe I, I don't know, like 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 you said, you and you, you said it's beneficial to the film. Um, I mean, if, is it? I'm not too sure because. I think in Thunder Road, that's an interesting one because if he's directing that character stood there, then he, he knows how that character is meant to be built and how it then flows and that, how that destruction is laid. I think th- th- you, you get to cut out the middleman there and you can get his thought process you know, straight to the actual character stood there. Whereas this, is it like a Tarantino situation where he's just throwing himself in for good measure or is this a character where it's, it feels like a genuine artistic choice rather than ah oh, you know what I, I can I can throw the Australian accent out in a, in a in a western film so everyone remembers I made this film or is it is it something else I'm not I don't, I don't know it'd be interesting to see your well hear your Diego thought, thoughts on that to be honest yeah so this is my uh my first Jim Cummings film like I haven't seen Thunder Road although it's been on my watch list for ages now but I quite enjoyed this it wasn't a revelation or anything that was like mind-blowing but for what it was trying to be, I, I thought it was enjoyable. It was quite exciting. I liked the Cohen-esque mix of kind of comedy with a little bit of horror and all that stuff. Like, I liked the way it balanced tones. Like, I found that was one of the strengths of the film, just the way in which it was able to kind of just masterfully handle those tonal shifts. Because I know, like, a lot of films have tried that. Like, I, I haven't seen Slice, but I'm sure, like, I've heard that that's one of the issues where they can't quite balance the comedic, and the horror parts of it, but this is a film that does so very well. And it also is able to include some drama in it without it feeling like, just like any like tonal shift or like, cause I know that's actually an issue for a lot of people in one of the films that we're gonna be talking on about later tonight. But overall, I found that it was very good at uh, managing tonal shifts. Jim Cummings' performance was actually pretty great. I found the direction engaging, like he hasn't really, He's never been a director to have much like visual flair that just like kind of like instantly captivates you. But he does have these kind of subtle like pulls on like just the way in which he does everything and the way in which he actually is able to stretch his budget pretty, pretty far. Because I think this is also a pretty, even though it's a studio film, it's a pretty low budget production. And Thunder Road, I think, was made on 10 times less than what this was made on. And he does have a talent for stretching his budgets, which I think is also a sign of a good director especially at the independent level so I do have to commend him on that as well Robert Forster brief but it was a good role um the pacing I found the pacing to be fine and I'd say overall the storyline was intriguing it was a good mystery it, like I said before it wasn't a, re- uh, a revelation but I found it to be quite enjoyable and well worth the watch I think it's what you said about the tone I agree with you there where it's it... It's it's an amalgamation of a lot of different genres, and it, it it's sort of impressive that it isn't a disaster. So I I guess in a way that is rather impressive that you know you've got you've got comedy elements whilst the horror's going on, or vice versa, and then you've got a, a sort of more or less murder mystery in the background as well. And it, I think the last twenty minutes of the film it all comes together really well. I think the payoff is well worth the build up, but I do think for for a second film from a director that's sort of just establishing themselves. Um, I do think it has a couple of issues that he can flatten out later on in his career, but, I, you know, I think the there's a lot of shots in Thunder Road where it's like there's long zooms where it's just slowly coming in on a character, and that's used in Wolf Hollow, but not to the same extent as it was in Thunder Road, where it's sort of, in Thunder Road, it feels like there's 
an actual artistic purpose for using such a shot or you know having that in at a certain point in thunder uh, in the wolf of snow hollow it feels just sort of i don't know it, f- it feels a bit artificial rather than you know worthwhile so i haven't seen thunder road and i didn't watch the wolf of snow hollow either um until like you two like you and diego talked about it i've had mostly been seeing mixed things about the wolf of snow hollow so i didn't want to watch it because you have to pay for it and i was like well why would I pay $15 to own a movie that I haven't seen that probably isn't going to be that good? Like, that's outrageous. But I feel like you guys are convincing me a little bit. Maybe I'll get it when the price goes down. But yeah, I don't know anything about Jim Cummings. I haven't seen any of his stuff. The only reason I know his name is because of his film Twitter controversy that I'm sure everybody knows about. So I feel like I should get around to his stuff because everyone seems to like him even after that so i think that says something about his work i mean the, the release is an interesting thing to, to touch upon because thunder road was was adapted from his own uh, short um film a few years before that but i think thunder road was something which did get a huge emphasis on on a release uh digitally and he did a touring uh, commitment of it around the uk presumably probably did the us as well maybe a little bit of europe um and I think Twitter w- was one of those things where it manifested a really big pull on him. I think like this Twitter controversy, I think you are right. Like, I think he knows how to play the game. I think following 12,000 film Twitter people and for, for his release of his film to drum up publicity and then to drop them and, and then not to follow them back. Well, sorry, to, to not follow them back after those uh, releases. I mean, fair play. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But I think it's interesting when we look at uh, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, and with sort of the same tactic is used because during lockdown, during this COVID um, epidemic, I think this is probably the film he was hoping that would probably be his Pulp Fiction. And, and I'm not trying to compare him and Tarantino in any way, but the man or the, uh, the filmography. I just think it's an interesting parallel where you have a very intimate um, character study as your first film. And then two or three years later, you ride that buzz and you make something a little bit bigger. And the regard of that to Pulp Fiction thematically and regarding genre is very different, don't get me wrong, but this is a film that feels both devoid of of taking like his, I don't know, artistic and probably credential that extra f- bit further. That's what I'm hearing anyway. Again, take this with a, a, a grain of salt with me not actually having been able to view the film, but like Alina, this is unavailable um, on, on quite a lot of uh, European sites and and, and uh, you know so forth so it's just going to be an interesting one where this drums up publicity because Cummings now I mean he's just one of many on Twitter he's not this breakout artist anymore and from what Ewan said specifically as well as Diego while there is like artistic merit here there is something to sort of be rewarded in it's not particularly the highlight as a sophomore effort would probably deserve I mean you look at all the, the these great independent filmmakers you have like bottle rocket and then you have stuff like that now uh, the royal tenenbaums like and then like, like i said reservoir dogs pulp fiction there is sort of like a big push regarding sort of artistic merit but also pushing the boundaries of, of getting more cast members in really showing your stuff um here i'm just not particularly sh- sure what this is i mean this might be a passion project for him i'm, I'm none the wiser although i still think that for a second uh, sophomore effort, I think this probably should have been a little bit more punchy. It should have gone for something a little bit more extreme. I mean, it's 83 minutes long uh, on its purported running time, which I think is uh, probably tells a story in its own right as well. Um, 
But I think even with the Robert Foster's, well, the late great Robert Foster's final uh, performance, um, I think there's probably not enough here to sort of generate and garner a big media response or financial critical response to begin with. So I think when this gets more eyes on it, which I think eventually it will do because it carries this Jim Cummings brand all of a sudden, I do think that his stock will probably deviate and go down. However, it'll be interesting to see where he goes from this because we've had the character study when then we've had the, the genre piece. Where he goes next will be very interesting. I'm not too sure where that'll go because this is very left field where I would have predicted this would have gone. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes. I'll probably be there for round three. I'll probably catch up with his filmography one day or another. It's just that this is something that just doesn't scream anything to me. It's like dog soldiers meet Shaun of the Dead. I'm like, well, I just go watch Dog Shoulders or Shaun of the Dead. I don't want an amalgamation of two very distinct genres melded together. You know, Thunder Road, my point essentially is that Thunder Road is a Jim, Jim Cummings film. Is Snow, well, is, you know, is, is this film a Jim Cummings film? From what you and Diego have said, it's, I probably would say not, not so much. From what I've seen of him, it's, he knows how to, he knows how to edit a good film. He knows how to light it properly. He knows how to put a good camera bit together. He knows how to do all of these things. It just doesn't come together as well as it should have. But I, I don't think that's anything to do with the genre or the cast he's got. Because it is an impressive cast if you've got Robert Forster in it or you've got people like E. Lindholm in it. I think the issue he's got here is I think he has too much material to work with. And then it's just sort of, it feels very manic where he's piecing together a murder mystery, uh, a, 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 a main plot with his own character that feels very similar to Thunder Road with a you know, police officer and a daughter that don't get along and so on. It's, it's, he's thrown a lot of the wall and he's seeing what sticks, which, you know, fair play. I mean, if that's the way he wants to do it, then, you know, I can't knock him for that. But I don't think it works as, as well as it should have. But I don't think it's enough to, to write him off completely as a director who's not going to go any further than this. I do think he's got what it takes to make a properly very good film. I just think this is a bit of a, a stumble before the inevitable big picture. I think the reason why Thunder Road stands out more to this is that there's a baseline for it with the short film. If this was a short piece before that he'd made, maybe like seven or eight years earlier, and then we'd have seen this, I think we'd have probably seen a bit more of a craftsmanship there, a sort of evolution of what works and what doesn't. I think with Thunder Road, he struck gold because he had that criteria, had that recipe of knowing what would work in a feature film from having a um, a short film to, to showcase. With this, it's interesting because you'd have thought that the teething problems would have come out in the first film. He would have rectified that. And then this would have been his um, stronger feature film due to that uh, previous, you know, know, ironing out his work. And it's interesting when we say where he's going to go next is that that probably gives me slightly more optimistic and more hope regarding this fourth film, because then at that point he'll know in a feature film, if if he's not adapting it from a previous work, He's writing it and crafting it as a singular entity. I think that we'll see a probably a lot stronger director. Um, but if, 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 if I would have one thing to say just before Diego goes in, um, I would just say that I'd be interested to see what he's like when he directs a feature film without him as a cast member. It'd be interesting to see how he then is able to direct um, a lead character and a lead performer, namely something that somebody or something or someone, should I say, who, who has got a little bit of a filmography out there as well. Someone who is 
I don't, you don't, I don't want someone like Bruce Willis in there. I don't know why that name keeps on coming up for some reason. I think it's like the Looper thing, but I don't know why. But I just think that if you have someone like a star, and it's no disrespect to Robert Foster at all, but I think if you've got like a star that's been around for, let's say, 40 to 50 years in this, or maybe 30 to 40, 50 years, who's been in this uh, industry, who, who is looking to sort of touch upon this type of work and work with a new director, but has got a not necessarily a standard but a personality where it's you know well this will be interesting to see how we can work with her or work with him i think it'll be uh be very interesting how jim cummings approaches that and then deals with it and then rectifies that with a with an end result um i don't know if anything is sort of in the in the works for him at all i'm not too sure if he's got anything in the pipeline um i think he's he, you know but it'll just be very interesting to see where it goes from here i'm, I'm actually more optimistic now on that front however i think that Thunder Road was a little bit of a blip in the regards of knowing what to do and what not to do. And in, in, a, in an actual fact, it's not really the dark, dark, well, it's his breakthrough, don't get me wrong, but it's not a directorial debut effort, which then changes things a little bit for me regarding him and his filmographer. I mean, I know you mentioned uh, talking about where he's going to go next, and I think he's actually shot his next film already, and it's coming out in 2021, I think late 2021, if I'm correct. But it's actually called The Beta Test. And it seems like he's actually continuing the trend seen in Wolf of Snow Hollow of kind of crossing genres. So hopefully that becomes uh, something that he kind of becomes known for because I do know that that's worked out for a lot of, especially a lot of Korean directors tend to do a lot of that um, kind of like genre switching, just a lot of tonal shifts. Like I know Korean cinema is known for that. So Jim Cummings looks like he could be down that road as well and produce something great. Um, Cause the beta test apparently it's the synopsis, a married Hollywood agent uh, deals with the fallout after receiving a mysterious letter from an anonymous sexual encounter. And he says it's about the agency fight with the WGA, but that it's also a horror film. So that sounds like it could definitely be potentially very interesting. And another example of him just kind of uh, shifting genres and just um, including just so many different tones and genres in his pieces. So I do feel like if that becomes kind of what he's known for, because um, I know Thunder Road was more of a standard drama, but Wolf of Snow Hollow was obviously just comedy horror drama just so much. I feel like this could become his trademark and he could become a really great director if he continues down this path. Next, let's move on to the 40-year-old version. Right. Remember, if you put in nothing, it'll be nothing. Like your career? <laughs> Remember this face? She was one of Spotlight Magazine's 30 under 30 playwrights to watch. We watched, but where'd she go? How are you? Good. Archie tells me you're teaching. How's somebody who ain't had no real hit gonna tell me how to write a play? She ain't no Tyler Perry. I did win a 30 under 30 award. Yes, it was quite a couple of years ago. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all white play? This some bullshit. The 40-year-old version is a New York comedy about a down-on-her-luck playwright who thinks the only way she can salvage her voice as an artist is to become a rapper at 40. So I watched the 40-year-old version this morning, like just before we recorded the podcast, and I did like it. It's definitely a unique story. I The issue I had with it is it kind of felt like a little long and she goes in a lot of directions which makes sense because she is like trying to like find her like new voice and figure out her stuff like at 40. 
So in the beginning, she she's like a washed up playwright. She won like a 30 under 30 award. And now that she's like in her 30s and is like approaching 40, she's struggling with like writing and just isn't getting any of her plays like being like made and like put on like at a theater. So she becomes a high school teacher to all these kids and they're supposed to be putting on a play together and she gets inspired and she hears them rapping. And then so she thinks like, oh, maybe this is the way to find my voice. And then she goes and like raps for a little bit. And then she like, she realizes like, oh, I'm 40. Like this probably isn't like the way to go. And she ignores that for a little bit. And then she like comes back to like a play that she's doing. And there's like this whole thing about her like selling out, even just like describing that. It just feels like it was like just very all over the place as she's trying to find herself. So, did you feel the same way, Ewan? Yeah, a bit. I think it's it, it, it has that sort of tug of war between an already established career that's sort of going nowhere and a new opportunity for her to take part on. I think it, it, it needs to find its balance a bit better when detailing these two things because you, you've got a really good lead actress who's directed and written this film and that's impressive on its own. And then at the core of it, you've got a, a a playwright struggling to make it, but also now struggling to rap as well. Because from the very first scenes, it's like clear that she's got a talent that you know she could take further, but then it never really goes anywhere really huge, or there's no payoff, I guess. But I did enjoy it. I thought it was really really good, and considering it's a Netflix film, that just surprises me. Their their recent track record has not been the best. Um, I think it's good though. I think it it's that sort of love for New York and you know the area around it that we haven't seen since like seventies Woody Allen. But it's it's done in such a way that it brings such a a modern charm to it. It's really, really good. Um I think it's got a strong lead performance. I think the actual lyrics for the rap that she actually performs pretty good. Um I think you know there, there are definite issues, but considering this is like a debut this is fantastic like uh, as far as debuts go it's i'm not, I'm not going to use the word phenomenal but it's 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 close it's very very good um i think a lot of it depends on the chemistry and the charm of the lead performer um it, it should resonate well for anyone in a midlife crisis and it's like i'm 20 years younger than the lead character but i'm sort of you know i'm i'm scared i agree with you i think we're all in the same boat at that and then also I'm remembering now there's a point where she's talking to her agent who is also like a friend from high school. And this is the part when she's like writing a play and she calls it Harlem Ave. And it's about like gentrification. So they have a white producer. There's a white director for the play that a black woman has written. They make her insert a white character. And so there are points when her and her agent who is a Korean gay man are talking and they've been friends since high school. and they. Um, they're joking about her notes and there are point, there's a point when he like comments like oh you need to work on your length as well and I think that's like Rada as like the real version realizing she struggles with like length in her like real life stuff as well because this was over two hours and I don't think it needed to be that long it felt like a, a piece that would have slotted in comfortably to 90 minutes I didn't that, that extra half hour was sort of spent on just detailing subplots and wrapping those up and they didn't really need to be there in the first place but 
you know, it's it's nice to have a bit more included and it was enjoyable nonetheless, but I think considering how much of its time in this is spent on building up a main character and they're not really giving it any payoff, I think it definitely has some issues around its length, which, you know, is for, for a debut, I think it's forgivable. I think there's always going to be a few teething problems. Um, but this one has a lot, a lot less than I thought it would. Um, yeah, it's 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 a really strong debut. I'm not sure why it was filmed in black and white. That just sort of went over my head. I feel I felt like it was just included for no reason. But I, I don't know if you thought any different. I'll just add as well. I I, I haven't seen this film myself, and as promised, not going to become a recurring issue because I have I have seen the the film we're going to talk about last. Um, but I remember watching like a pre um a pre roll for this film. I think it was on Twitter where the uh, the the the, the, the subject. Um, character was talking about like the reason why they called this the name of the film the fossil version is because you know you, you see white people sort of appropriate the black culture and this is a time now for, for the film to do it itself and see what sort of the, the leeway would be and it's been interesting because not many people and I've read quite a few reviews on this haven't mentioned that where this is a film about a 40 year old woman reclaiming what she wants to do with her life. It's quite a, quite a powerful sort of, I mean, don't mind that there is all these sort of existential crisis, midlife crisis films, but it's, it's interesting sort of that no one lives in a penthouse in New York who's dating a 14 year old girl when he's 47, you know, it's nothing like that. It's a film where it, it's, well, I want, it's got a very interesting voice where a black woman is reclaiming what she wants to do with her life, subjected to the parabells, what, what are being around her. I think it's a very interesting thing to sort of discuss. The nuance of that must be incredible. So it's it'll be interesting to see if it works. And from from the both of you, I think it, it's it's more so than not. But it's just a very interesting sort of uh, what's the word? I would say reclamation, but it's not. It's just it, it's it's just an interesting sort of entity to take hold of. Um, it's just interesting when you, you speak about the Netflix stuff as well. I, bring, I don't want to shit on Netflix every other week, but I'm going to. Um, I just want to sort of <laughs> say one thing is when you said the, the, the latest batch of Netflix releases, I hope you don't, uh, well, aren't mentioning Hubie Halloween in that, because if you are, our relationship after time. Maybe oh, no. Hubie Halloween. Slightly settled. Yeah, it's thank fantastic. you. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stick up for it. But it's interesting because a few weeks ago, um, we were talking about um, the Jamie Foxx sci-fi thing power project power um and it was just interesting because in in that in that film there is a character who's played by a young actress a black actress and i have to specify that for the reason why we go forward is that in that film she wants to become a rapper and when i was watching it bear in mind you've got to be very careful with these sort of things now because it's not you know it's just it can be taken out of context but the way i saw that film is that this film is about you know testing the, the waters of what you what you could do if you were given a power what would you use it for and you know obviously it's it's, a, it's used and abused so the parallel there is that a young girl has an idea and identity of what she wants to go forward but ha- being, being a young black girl and, and her then wanting to be a rapper felt de- redundant and sort of derivative of because of the color of her skin they could have done anything that and the film never reinforces like the rapping career throughout i mean there is a scene where she does in fact like, you know she raps over uh, it's like a dream sequence her, principal or teacher really powerful little scene but the film never reinforces that and i remember valerie complex on twitter also reinforced that thing where it was like they could have done anything else and i felt 
very similar. I felt they could have just done anything else within that scene or within that character, sort of build something else. I mean, everything she saw that night, she could have she could have wanted to work with disadvantaged children. She could have wanted to work with kids. She could have wanted to work with people who are addicted to this this drug in question. But it was just wanting to be a rapper. I don't know if that's because Jamie Foxx is included or what. It was just sort of just very strange. But it's interesting now Netflix are producing this, which is also a very similar topic. But it's the identity of not a sort of 11, 12, 13-year-old young girl. It's a 4 year old woman who's now, de- now deciding that she wants to do this. So the, I, I just bring it up because I find it very interesting how this is sort of slightly interconnected with that story. I mean... Again, I, I would have had to have seen this to sort of then judge it on those merits. But it feels more appropriate now to have, you know, a woman live through all this shit in her life, which I imagine for her would have been somewhat extraordinary compared to, 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 to likes of, of mine or, or other people. To have this sort of internal realisation where, you know, fuck it, you know, you're not going to get anything given, let's just go for it, let's just do something with my life. I, I find that quite a... Um, an interesting parallel rather than a 13-year-old girl. So at least to that extent, while they may be sort of painted by the same brush and ironically enough, or coincidentally, I'm not too sure, both produced by Netflix, it is an interesting sort of tacklement to take that feels more weighted with substance. Again, I would have to see the film, but that's probably an interesting sort of dynamic to have done that idea rather than what Project Power did, ironically enough. For me, the rapping in the 40-year-old version felt more like she's trying to, like, hold on to her youth and she's, like, not ready to accept that she's, like, turning 40. Because there are points when she's, like, talking to, like, herself and the other characters, like, what am I doing, like, rapping at, like, as a 40-year-old woman? Like, that's kind of ridiculous. But I feel like it also kind of, like, helped her get, like, back into like her like groove and her writing and even though after like the whole little rapping bit she kind of like starts selling out at least she's like trying to get a playmate again so she's like trying but it's like the problem she's running into now isn't like her own self it's people changing the play for themselves because they have like more power than her because they're a white woman director and a white man producer and then also to Ewan's point about like why the film is like predominantly in black and white it's in black and white except for the scenes when she's like imagining her like play characters and those are in color and I've been thinking about it since Ewan asked the question I don't really know like why either other than maybe that it's supposed to be like representative of her being like stuck in her life but I don't know. I did like that. I like like modern movies that are in black and white, but I don't really like know if there's a why for this one. I think I, I do prefer that the fact that this was in black and white rather than colour. I don't know why, but I think it just it, it moves better because it's sort of stripped away and it's just black and white. Here it is. Yeah. And I think it, it does a lot, not just to talk about, you know, race, but it also does a lot of talk about ageism. You know, you've got a 40-year-old woman trying to start a rap career and it's just so out there and different. It, it works quite well um and it it does say a lot about you know oh, a 40 year old woman wants to do rap i don't think that's going to happen but it, it it comments on that not not as much as i thought it would but it's definitely there because you know our main character and everything but i, I think it touches upon that rather nicely um it feels like there's a hugh grant film from like 2014 called the rewrite and it's where he's an oscar winner 
and then he finds himself teaching at a university and he just sort of makes peace with that by the end of the film. But in this, it feels like, like you know, there's still a story to tell. There's no real closed narrative. That's not sort of what this is going for. It's very out, out in the open and very... What's the word I'm looking for? It, it doesn't manage to tie itself together, but I feel like that's intentional. Or it's, it's open-ended. We don't know what, what's going to happen next. I, I do like that. I'm looking forward to seeing what, like, Rada does next after this film because you're, you're totally right that the loose ends aren't tied up because her career is, like, her career, because, like, her name is Rada in the movie and her name's Rada in real life. Like, she's, like, named after, she names their character after herself. So the character is really, like, a representation of herself. So, like, with the ending, it's, like, mirrors her real life where she's not sure where her career is going just yet, but she's trying. So I'm looking forward to, like, seeing what she does next because now it feels like she's found her, like, voice and she's, like, unapologetic about, like, the, like, blackness and, like, the women elements and, like, all these things in it. She's not, like, shy about saying like no this is what I want for like my work going forward um and I don't want you to change that even if you're gonna like give me like rent money because like this is my art and it's not yours to change it's a it's loosely autobiographical and I think where it where it blows the line between fact and fiction isn't clear and I think that sort of works to her advantage where she can tell her own story but at the same time give it a happy ending or give it a sad ending change some things here and there and I do think that personal experience and her reliance on it throughout the film really helps it and I think that hopefully we'll see more of that whenever her next project is. Just to touch on the, the monochrome as well I think it's probably best to sort of mention that Radar is a student of Spike Lee as well she's she just come off producing uh, the uh, sort of revitalized television production um, of She's Gotta Have It so it probably may be sort of a, an O'Day homage to Spike Lee's debut um, which is also shot in New York in, in, in black and white. So it may be, maybe one or two things, but I think it also sort of, it, it does romanticise New York. It does go back to that 70s, 80s idyllic iconography of those Woody Allen films, which made it famous, you know. There, there is, there's something quite restrictive about watching something in black and white, but it's also something quite romanticised and powerful in the fact that, you know, Radha's character in here, named after so I've been slightly autobiographical, it's, it's probably just a state that, things shouldn't be as black as white, black and white as they should be. I mean, if we see things in, in, in black and white, I mean, it's the interesting parallel when someone says, I don't see colour. I mean, the, the, the answer to that is that if you don't see colour, then you're blinded to the fact of, you know, prejudice and, and so on and so forth. So it's probably a, a contextual, um, emotive identity as well to sort of, you know, make sort of a subconscious, if you will, although this is like, literal so it's, it's a conscious sort of filmmaking decision to 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 use you know emotion or, or, or depth if you will without strong nuance don't get me wrong but i think it also works in the fact that when you see something in black and white um you don't tend to focus on the the the, the background or you don't tend to focus on the iconography as such you tend to focus on the character i think that's what works in universal horror films in the 30s not that this is anyway connected but i just think that when you see something black and white and the, the, the thing is like well it's boring it's boring i think it has a life in itself where you watch something in black and white you are maintained to, to sort of watch character 
more so than you would be to watch something in in color i mean if you see uh, fritz lang's metropolis i think there's there's two versions there's the, the original and then there's the re you know Giorgio, uh, uh, is it Emorio, Emporio? He does this score for it. Um, and then you've got, you know, Queen are on it, but they've all, it's also filmed in colour. And I think it's, it's the one thing where it just loses that momentum where, yes, you're watching something with, with amazing production design um, and it's so colourful. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you watch the original, it still has that emotion and you don't have that colour there. But you, you take that monstrosity of a, of a setting like you do in New York when you just see it as brick and mortar and then you have a central character who's ultimately, if this is what the film's conveying, I don't know, but I haven't seen it, but it would be that she's just one of many people. And then when she has these dream sequences where it's cool, there's an imagination there, there's, there's probably living a, an idealistic life of what she sees that she wants to do. So it's probably a filmmaking um, thing, which is, is, is probably used quite a lot within this medium. But again, to speak about Jim Cummings, the comparisons, um, I believe this is a director debut. I might be wrong. I know she's she's quite familiar with the television works, and that's obviously uh, done rather great justice to get a deal with Netflix. Um, it'd be interesting to see how far Netflix take Radha because this this I don't think we'll see another film like this. I think this is one and done. I don't think we'll see like a ten year, you know, continuation of this story. But I think Netflix need to keep these black voices. They need to be keeping and and, and and highlighting, especially a, a, a black woman as well. I mean, you know, we, we, we spoke about this, we will, we speak about this every week about regarding Netflix's sort of identity. And, you know, you have the likes of Scorsese on there, you've got Alfonso Cuaron, you've, you've got quite a few giant, giants there with the cinema realm, but, you know, Ava Devani w- w- was on there, you, you know, with, with the likes of uh, the, the documentary she made, but then she went to go work for Disney. So it's interesting if they can keep hold of these um, minority filmmakers, if you will, and give them a place and an identity of where, you know, go out and make something on this budget. Let's just get it out there and then see what works. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really good industry practice. Dependable if the, if, if they do in fact do it. I mean, when it, when it comes to mind, I can't think of a 40 year old black woman who is on that length of working with Netflix aside from Ava. But then Ava's not even on there anymore anyway. I mean, she probably will be, but she has her own production company. She's producing this, that, and everywhere, isn't she? So maybe this is like a really good place for Radha to really get 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 stuck in, you know? I don't know. I'm excited. I'm excited. Should be good stuff. I like what you said about the whole, like, black and white, more highlighting the characters more, because I think the characters are what, like, really elevate this film. Like, Radha's, like, an excellent character, and... I really liked her agent. I forget his name, but he's like the gay Korean man. I thought he was like really, really funny. Every time he was like on screen, I was happy to see him. And then there's also another compelling character. And when she's doing the like rapping bit, he's like a younger man. He's like 26 or something. And he's the one who like makes the beats for the like rap lyrics. Um, And at the beginning, he just like, when he first pops up, he feels like, He's just, like, a random character, but he actually, like, comes into his own as, like, the film progresses because he sees something in, like, Rada, and when she, like, stops doing, like, the rapping thing, he's, like, trying to chase her and, like, get her to come back because he thought he she had, like, a very, very, like, unique and, like, interesting, like, perspective, and he liked working with her. And then her high school students are also, like, 
they're just funny. Um, and like they're recurring throughout the film and I, I really liked them too. So she writes very great characters. So that's why I'm looking forward to her next film. Finally, let's talk about the trial of the Chicago Seven. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was gonna be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Jack, take it away. Um, where, to, where to start with this? Um, I'm, I'm still slowly comprehending and diluting this film in my head, so I do apologize if this is sort of sporadic and, and uh, hyperbolic. But when this was initially announced and, and Netflix had dropped it, then it wasn't going to go, and then it was going to go, and then they start stacking this cast up with the likes of Eddie Red, man. Drawing Sasha Baron Cohen, it really did sort to have a little life in it. So it was this massive ensemble cast, you know, written directed by Aaron Sorkin. That's a huge thing now, um, which I'll touch upon in a minute because I think that's probably one of its issues. However, it had everything stacked against it. It's coming about around at the time where festivals, the circuit starts to uh, really start to uh, beat up. Um, and then you have the Academy Awards, uh, regardless, in the next few months, or early next year, should I say. So there's a lot against this to begin with. And what I will say is that, and this is going to be very hyperbolic, but I don't think this will actually entertain anything at the Oscars. I think this is a very mundane, very diluted um, and mediocre uh, political as well as a drama. Now, there are, there are two things in here that that's, well, there's three things. There's, there's three things that here that I'll highlight to begin with, and I'll just go off in tangents. But first of all, Sorkin as a director, there's still a lot to manoeuvre and, and room to grow there. There are a few scenes here, specifically as montage sequences, uh, which I have a slight issue with. They get in the same breath. I think that how he sort of conveys mood and, and, and worry and fear um, through quick shots, quick edits, I think is, is one to be applauded by. His use of montage, I find in the first, and I know we'll probably have a conversation about this, but I think his montage in the opening with the assassinations, with the um, song playing throughout, I think that's a really missed opportunity. And I think, unfortunately, inadvertently, it comes off quite tone deaf. I don't want to sort of bring this person into this conversation because I think it's, it's, it's not slightly appropriate, but also contextual. But if you look at the work of Zack Snyder, what he crafts very well is that he will open his film with an oxymoronic um, relationship between image and sound. So you'll get like a very uh, well-known cover or a, or a song that will brood mood. And then you have the imagery there, which the, both of them will always be connected to each other in one way or another. But at least then you have this sensibility of what you know you're going in for. Ironically enough, that works here, but not in the way that Sorkin wants. Because what happens is that you have assassinations of mass leaders here. There's three political assassinations. Um, well, actually, all of them are political assassinations, but you have three politicians. You have the likes of Martin Luther King, whose assassination is shown, albeit briefly. And they're just consecutively shown continuously. 
but the film never wants to reinforce that throughout its, throughout its identity. It's just here. And it's like a brief prologue, if you will, to like, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what we're fighting for. But in actual fact, the, the, I, I just don't think that the, the film reinforces that these, well, seven, but technically eight, and that's also something I need to touch upon, is that they didn't seem to be fighting for that cause. And I think, I don't know if that's because predominantly it's a white cast where it goes on that white saviour avenue. I'm not too sure about that, but the first sequence really sort of took a lot of time for this film to build against for me. So again, I'm just against the, the grain continuously until a certain point. The second part of it is the performances. Where, I, where I'm going to sort of be appreciative of it, I think there's a quite a few issues here. However, Jeremy Strong is, is, is playing a character that's going to get memed to, to fuck, if, if, pardon my French. And there's going to be something there about him getting a cult status in his little cult he's already got on film Twitter. But it's a, but it's a performance that just feels like monotone and flat. It's so one note. And I think everything throughout is also the same. There's one opportunity for this film where Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden, played by Sasha Baron Cohen and Eddie Redmayne, have this confrontation in this house. And it was the first time where you, I, I felt like venom. I felt they were fighting for something. It felt real. It felt like these two were fighting from two different ideologies on the and, and the same tree. They were just different branches. That came 25 minutes before the film ended. This film's 130 minutes long. As a writing standpoint, which I'm going to touch upon as the last thing, is it's just not good enough. And that's the irony of this piece. But the performances in itself, Jeremy Strong, quite good. Eddie Redmayne can't get out of second gear. It's the same thing from the first moment he's on screen to the last. Alex Sharp has nothing to do, not related, by the way, although I will, I will sort of look for him with a more kindred spirit, knowing that he's a namesake of mine, but it, uh, which is ironically enough a factor in the film as well with the Hoffman. Um, Mark Rylance is, is, is pretty good here. He doesn't really have a lot to do, but he's, he, he has like this striking dominance. Frank Langella is amazing. I always like seeing Frank Langella in a film, if it's not the ninth gate, which we can't talk about because someone directed it and no one likes appropriately so. But he's always a character actor who puts something so powerful, like, I don't know, he just questions morality with his voice. It's a really impacting performance. And he's playing this archetype judge that we've seen now multiple times. Um, so he's got really nothing to do. I mean, at that point, yeah, yeah, for me, I think he is going to be one to watch. He has been since Watchmen. He has sprinkles throughout his filmography before that. The one I'm waiting for is The Matrix 4 as a fanboy. To watch the Wachowskis make something is one thing, but knowing they're going back to the well to make Matrix 4 generally it makes me sort of stay up at night not being able to sleep with excitement. But he is an actor who just takes even the most mundane of screenplays and characters to just make something out of it. He has a lot of courtroom sequences here where it's quite repetitive. Contextually so, that's not any detriment to Sorkin's screenplay at all, but it's very detriment to sort of really being able to focus on that character. Again, there's one sequence in a prison uh, where there's a meeting with him and Matt Rylance, which was very impacting. However, the screenplay never sort of enforces the fact of his story, which I would actually prefer to have seen. And then you have a byline and a logline at the end, which just didn't do it for me at all. I think that was quite um, inappropriate regarding the context of that, how integral that, that, that performance is to the overall themes of the film for then him to get and the character itself to be pushed aside, to me, was, was slightly um, inappropriate. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is one that's a mixed bag for me. I think the comedy, he just he could do that in his sleep. The dramatic entity of it is a very sort of tonal shift within the film, which for me was like, 
difficult to sort of comprehend as, to watch that performance. It slowly reveals itself to be something a little bit more. Don't get me wrong, but for, for the longest time, it's so difficult to gel because it's joke after joke after joke. And also the accent slips so many times. I just felt I was watching Borat and I don't think it helped that that Amazon trailer of Borat 2 has been released during the uh, push for this film. I just And I know that's no fault of Cohen's or the film, but it just felt very strange to see such an iconograph, well, such an iconic character be brought back to life and then have Sasha Cohen do this and try to sort of do the dramatic um, embodiment of this character. Everything else here, I mean, there's a cameo that I don't really want to spoil, but I mean, if you look at the cast list, he's in there. That to me just felt, again, redundant, although I love actually seeing that actor on screen. Um, overall, there's just nothing really here with performance-wise that was sort of engaging or anything. It just felt so dull. I mean, Joseph Gone Love It has something, but again, it just never gets out of second gear. And my third point is that I just think the screenplay's boring. The film's boring. It has so much to say. And it's and, and there's, there's such a sort of idea of, to have this courtroom drama and to, to, to go back and forth with an edit, which I think was going to be sort of the, the, the identity of this film. And it is to a certain degree, but it should really have started of them entering the court and going back and do the 12 Angry Men where you, you, you have that central plot line, but then you cut back and forth, you cut back and forth, and maybe have a Rashomon thing where it's like, this actually happened here, but no, this actually happened. Because I think, I've, I know Alina, you're going to touch on this. There's a certain political message here that's so ham-fisted without any nuance or subtlety at the end it just feels like a hit piece at the end which is so so strange because it doesn't it's not built as that it's meant to be this quite powerful thought-provoking sentiment where we need to be careful of, of of what happens with 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 big government but here it was just so relentlessly and unbashedly um you know i mean like i said i'm not going to be someone who says that these people were in the wrong i don't think they were i think they stood, they stood up for what for what they believed in and i completely agree with that but at the end of the day, it's just there's only so much you can have of nuance where it just becomes like, right, you're hitting with it all the time. I want to sort of enjoy the film. You know, either that or make a documentary. That's what I'm trying to say. If Sorkin wants to make the documentary and then he wants to sort of abashedly throw the politics in, I'm game. I'm there to watch the actual thing. I'm what the politics sort of engulf and I'm watch, there to listen to these these people and listen to the voices and to hear what the, what they fought for. Here, I'm also wanting to be entertained and for the most of the time, it just felt so flat. But overall, just to sort of quickly go on because I know I keep on fucking talking. But I think for Sorkin as well, this is a strange one because this is now his second sophomore effort as a director. The first one was Molly's Game, which if you look back, seems a very strange for him, film for him to direct. Um, and there is a lot of room to manoeuvre there. Don't get me wrong. I think his evolution as a director is going to become very Lumiere. And I know that probably you and I'll touch upon that in a minute, but it just doesn't feel as a striking iconography. There's no like striking aesthetic. Where, oh, it's a Sorkin film. And even the screenplay didn't feel in any way sort of integral to that man's persona. It just didn't feel like it was Sorkin. Yes, there's a lot of like venomous, strong scenes, but in this day and age now, I don't think that's a testament to someone who can write. I just think that happens quite a lot now. You know, I think anything in Nolan can do this and that. You know, it's not an issue having a really strong writer. You just need to get the performances. You can make a great script. Uh, you can make a, a shit script great. I don't think it's a really big thing anymore. That's my sort of pessimistic take on it. However, I just felt so bored and flat for most of this running time. And then it has these bylines at the end which I just felt were just thrown into tack 
I mean, even make the film two and a half hours long and actually do justice to these characters after the fact. But there's just so many courtroom dramas. I mean, I'm not getting me wrong. It's a very different film. I'd rather watch My Cousin Vinny than this again. And I, I love Joe Pesci. I love My Cousin Vinny. But even then, you have like a morbid conversation on on politics and and the judicial system in place. Whereas here, it's just thrown down your throat to a degree where it's just it's just too much. I'd just go watch The Verdict, go watch 12 Angry Men, go watch My Cousin Vinny. So I think I'm a lot more positive about the trial of the Chicago 7 than Jack is, which is fine. Um, I really love the late 60s and early 70s. Like that is one of my favorite like eras in like modern history. Because um, I was a history major in, in university, but I, I liked like a lot more like older stuff, like classics. But like the 60s and 70s is like the one modern era that I find super fascinating. So I knew I was going to like this. I've always been into like the hippie movement and like the Vietnam protests and all these things. And so I knew that like student protests and all these things were like happening. But I never, I think I've heard of this before, but I didn't know the specifics of the Chicago 7 case. So I was interested to see it like on screen and I think it's a very like compelling story because um like Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong they're like one set and then uh Eddie Redmayne and his buddy they're like the students and the Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong are the hippies and then there's like Bobby Seale who gets like lumped into it and he's like part of the Black Panthers and there's like some other people that are kind of just like there to make the other people look worse um and they didn't really have much to do so I thought it was interesting that they brought people with different ideologies together fighting for the same thing um and I think that's what makes it interesting because they're fight they're fighting about like how to go about it and that's the like central conflict that Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen's characters have um I liked the acting in it. I like, I, I love Sasha Baron Cohen. Like I told my dad like, oh, Sasha Baron Cohen's in this movie. And he was like, oh my God, he like dropped everything and started watching it. Cause like, we just love him. Like I remember uh, as like younger, when I was younger, my dad would like throw on like his like Ali G character videos on like YouTube. And he thinks they're so funny. Every time he like, we talk about like Sasha Baron Cohen, he like starts like doing his Ali G impression. It's so funny. Um, anyway. So I have a soft spot for Sasha Baron Cohen is what I'm saying. Like, I get what Jack is saying, but like, I thought he was great. Eddie Redmayne, on the other hand, I don't know what it is about him, but I just like can't get behind him as an actor. I don't know if it's because I hate the Fantastic Beasts movies so much or if I just don't like Eddie Redmayne. I don't know why, and this is mean, but his acting in this movie reminded me of a frog. Like, it just felt like he was holding something back and he just felt like a bullfrog that was like not that just like wasn't going to make the bullfrog sound. I don't know what it is. I, I know that's like a weird thing to say, but he just reminds me of a frog. Um, <laughs> and I thought Jeremy Strong was great too. Uh, I've never seen Succession and I feel like I should now because I thought he was, I thought he was funny as like the hippie dippy character. Um, so I liked it for that reason because like there was a lot of different ideologies coming together. And now that I think about it, uh the movie a lot more because I thought it was electrifying as I was watching it and now that I'm thinking about it more and like learning more about the stuff that wasn't shown in the movie I'm starting to like it less 
because it feels like Aaron Sorkin like took this story and wrote this movie for his like own political motivations rather than the political motivations of the characters and that's not fair because they're real characters like these are real people and these are like actually like a fight they did and you're co-opting like their words and like their story and their persona for your own like political ambitions or like whatever because I think something that liberals need to realize is that liberals and leftists are like very very different and I feel like Aaron Sorkin just like liberal like liberalized this movie like too much because again I like Sasha Baron's char- Sasha Baron Cohen's character in this movie um and there's a point when he's like put on the stand and they like ask him about what he thinks of democracy and he was like oh yeah like I love democracy when it's like in their hands of like the right people or something like that he like says he likes democracy but then I saw a tweet like a few hours later saying like the character he's playing Abby Hoffman the real Abby Hoffman is like an anarcho communist in real life he would never say that and there's also a point at the end of the movie and I don't want to spoil it um but like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character like does something and Joseph Gordon-Levitt is one of the prosecutors so technically he's like on the villain side of this movie and he does something like sympathetic to the like defendants and it just felt very like ham-fisted for lack of a better word. I'm gonna get, I'm, I wasn't, I told myself I wasn't gonna get political, except I, but I'm gonna get political. So like, I don't know. I just have like such a trouble with like government officials like doing shit like that because it just feels so fake. So when I was in university, I did like three co-op terms with the Canadian federal government. And before that, I was like, oh yeah, people who work in the government, they actually like care about like our country and want to do like right by people. They don't, they really don't. They care about furthering their own careers. Like the senior managers who take on co-op students, they aren't doing it because they want like students in the public service. They're doing it so it looks better for their managers. I've done so many co-op jobs where I'm just like there to like make somebody else look good because it's giving them manager experience. They didn't do anything for me. So, I don't know. I feel like the more I like get closer with the like government, the less I trust people who work for the government because I find them to be like very selfish people because they're not doing it because they care. They're doing it because it's good money and you get a good pension and you get good benefits. And it's very easy to further your career in the public service. And I'm sure it's the same in like the US or the UK because that's what it was like for me. So I don't know. I just, I didn't like what Aaron Sorkin like did to those characters because it felt like he put his own views, he took his, their views away from them and put his views in them. I think it's, you're right in what you said about Joseph Gordon-Levitt where he plays this character that's sort of, he's just a government uh, piece really, isn't he? And there's a scene halfway through where Sasha Baron Cohen and Jeremy Strong are in a park and it's Christmas and, and they just bump into him. And he's like, Sasha Baron Cohen says, ah, he's a nice man, deep down. It's like, right, I guess. I mean, whatever. Yeah, I don't know why it was included, but sure, go for it. Um, I think it's a very mixed bag performance-wise. I think you've got some really good performances from Mark Rylance. Uh, you've got some... 
understated bits. There's a bit with John Carroll Lynch towards the end that I thought was quite, you know, it, he doesn't get much to do, but it brings his character to a decent conclusion. And that's, that, that's fine. But I think Frank Langella, like Jack said, is fantastic. I think it's just, it's nice to see him still sort of popping up in things like this. I, I remember the last time I saw him in anything was Frost Nixon. But um, it's, Again, yeah, it's a mixed bag. You've, Eddie Redmayne is, you know, it's his best performance since like the Thomas and Friends movie he did in 2015. But I think you're, you're right in what you said about Aaron Sorkin, where he's he's written all of this, and if you've ever seen something like The West Wing, it's it it feels on the same beats as that. It's got the right uh, pacing for it and everything like that, but it, it feels very by the numbers. It feels like it feels like a biopic that anybody could have been placed in to direct this. It doesn't feel like a piece that Sorkin would, it doesn't feel like a piece that's unique to him. I feel like if you put any name behind the camera, you're going to get the same result with this one. But then again, I, I enjoyed it. I am. Um, I liked the courtroom pieces. I liked uh, Mark Rylance. He was very good. Jeremy Strong was solid. Uh, I think it's, it's got a lot of, decent bits to it but it never fully comes together as it should which is a shame because I I studied this for one of my A-levels and it it was really interesting to read upon and all of this and it was nice to revisit it I don't think it it does it justice as a topic, as a subject to discuss in a film but I think it's it's the best you're going to get for a project like this I I do, I am a firm believer that and I know this is going to sound ridiculous but if you put Olivia Megatron in the director's chair you'd probably get the same result um which i know is ridiculous <laughs> but at the end of the day i still i think again like you said you and there's just no aesthetic here which is so strange from a from sork and i think before long that's going to be his downfall i mean you, you can you can be an extremely well-renowned writer but it doesn't translate to screen as, as a director of a vision um and i think that in the same vein i think not to bring up the harry potter connection but jk rowling is finding the same thing is she is a writer um, on a novel stance. As a screenwriter, she doesn't. It doesn't work as as practical and as and as formidable as it would do to get your words out in a different medium of writing. And I think Sorkin's going to really struggle behind the camera f- for the foreseeable future. Um, no doubt he'll get about nine other opportunities, regardless for Netflix or what. But just to touch on the, the politics angle, specifically with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think. What makes that scene even more inappropriate and difficult is the fact that when you watch the film back, that scene of him in the beginning, when he's sort of not completely sure about taking the job, but then when they say, you know, you'll be 33, you'll be the youngest person to do this, he then agrees, which again goes against his character because it just looks like he's a self-indulgent, egotistical bastard. And then the scene in question that Ewan said about in the park, we all know they're just there so, so it can, it can be like, I, I, not everyone's a bastard. Not everyone on that side, not everyone who's a Nixon supporter, administrators, they're not all bastards. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, if you're in that group of people, don't, you know, don't not be expected to get, get painted by the same brush, unfortunately, you know. If you hang around with people who have those beliefs, it's difficult not to sort of be painted with that same brush. And Sorkin is clearly just there reinforcing the fact of, you know, not all people are, uh, are you know, are on the wrong side of history. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is a film about seven people, eight if you count, count um, Yaya's character, where it's, you know, they were subjected to, well, a predetermined, premeditated 
um, indictment on, on the, the process of their thoughts. So, I mean, it's just, well, when you talk about the right side of history, I do, I, in that, those regards, I don't think you can make a, a multifaceted layered thing. I mean, you either are or you aren't. Again, there are parameters there to dictate depending on your situation, but I just don't think that the film affords Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character to have that nuance to then work that within himself. And then at the end, it feels natural to him understand it's like, we're not doing the right thing here. I mean, there is a scene where a character is, is bound and gagged and it's an incredibly like difficult scene to, to witness and how nobody seems to give a shit. And then until he then comes forward and says something, he's like, look, this is not right. And then, you know, obviously the, the characters are, are afforded a little bit of more depth, but that scene in question was like, I wonder if that is actual actuality there or if that's not him rewriting history. I'd, I'd like to sort of read up and, and read that because if that's true, then I think more more power to Aaron Sorkin. If it isn't, and he's done that for filmmaking merit, that's when it becomes very murky waters like Alina's talking about. That's the point there where you... you, you, you Unfortunately, you, you're not able to do that. I think that's a very ethical grey line. But just regarding the politics and stuff, I mean, I just think that at this moment in time, people are engulfed with politics on whatever angle. You, if it's not the the, uh, the the vote in November, if it's not what's happened this year with, with the likes of George Floyd, it, it, it's just, it's a tough time for anybody to have to, to have to watch. And I think I've said this multiple times, but I think the medium of cinema takes a lot from like the, the social parameters of, of what happens in our in our culture and it reflects that and it and it, and it it will sort of highlight the most hyperbolic of things and it will highlight the most evil things but there's then that mirror there's that void of, of and i said this about like hail caesar is that you can take yourself away from that when that's happening outside your door and it's happening on your tv screen live it's a very different world to comprehend that it's that cinema can't really do justice to it and again it's one of those things where this should have really been a documentary. It should have had all that emotive emotion and really sort of powered through in this time to be the political piece it wants to be. Because at the moment, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like propaganda, but it does, but it just doesn't feel like it has that weight to be like, take a stand. For me, for me anyway, I think it needs to be a documentary to really sort of follow through on its promises because I think it's going to put a lot of people off watching this because people just get tired of it. And, and again, that's, it's not particularly a nice thing to sort of say that, but it's true where people are finding it so tough at the moment to watch television and watch people with the same colour of their skin getting beaten to death and, and, and killed by this government where you're watching a film in which you're, you're hearing police officers lie, but there's just no end result for them. There's just nothing that Sorkin says, that's bad or that's good. He just presents it. And again, that's fair enough if you're not taking a stand. But as, as Alina, you, you mentioned, it very clearly is Sorkin putting his politics in there before the film itself. So it, it's a very sort of strange prism, if you will. It's like an echo chamber. You, you can't have your pie, you can't pie, you can't have your cake and eat it. Um, that's where I sort of really stand on it. It's just a very sort of mis, misaligned film. It, there's a lot here to like, but there's a lot here that just doesn't really make sense. I mean, Eddie Redmayne, I probably would not be able to disagree with you regarding the performance of him not being very good since what 2015. I mean, it's true. It's so it's so horrible to say, but it just doesn't have anything. I know that like uh, someone on Twitter, I can't remember who it was. I, I give credit where credit to you, but they were like, they just he doesn't sort of stand normally for 130 minutes. And if you watch it, he doesn't. He's just off on a queue all the time, and he has these like really quirky character motifs where 
it's just building up the inevitable at the end where he gets his moment, he gets his monologue. And I'm just like, I just felt the script was so premeditated. It was so predictable. He just didn't have those layers and be like, there's just no shock value. And the one scene it did in question, which is that bounding gag sequence, the film just fucks that off anyway. It just forgets about Yaya's character. And spoiler, I mean, there's only one black man in court. I mean, what's going to happen during the, you know, the 1960s. But the film just seems to like fuck that character off. Well, there you go. Yeah, you're done now. Let's focus on the seven. But none of those characters of the seven are dynamic or interesting enough to sort of have this weight on, the, on the, those, you know, of the characters themselves individually. As a group, it works. But the problem is the, the screenplay just isn't afforded to look at those characters individually. And also, we talk about the politics. There's a certain uh, police person, I'll say, who's undercover. I don't know if anyone else noted, but the film on occasion makes quite clear reference that that character's important. Important. There's a scene in the park well before it's transpired who that person is. And they are sat there listening to Abby Hoffman. They are sat there listening to Jeremy Strong's character, uh, Jerry Rubin. So it's interesting how like there's, a, there's, there's definitely a, an idea there to sort of integrate that. And on a second viewing, it'll be interesting to sort of pull these people out. But again, at the end, Alina, when, when you were saying about um, Joseph Claude Levitt, that person's also in that room and decides not to leave and stay there for the trial because of Jerry Rubin. But they don't decide to stand up. So it's interesting what Sokin's trying to say there. I mean, I, I, I would agree. I don't, I don't think all these people were, were horrible people like Richard Nixon. I don't think all these people should be put in the same breath. But when the film sort of projects all these police officers as being absolute bastards and all these politicians being self-indulgent, um, egotistical maniacs who want one thing and that is extreme power and not look at the, the, the rules of law, to then misalign that and then say, well, actually, she's, she's not bad. No, he's not bad, you know, come on. You know, he's got two kids, the young girls, you know, he's bringing two females up in, in this world. And it's like, you either do it or you don't. Don't bring extra character and then trying to maintain that these people are innocent or in, in, in any way authentic because they're not. What, is, what they're doing is horrific. They've been doing it, they're getting paid for it. It's horrible, you know. I think it's just a very misaligned political agenda that Sorkin doesn't quite nail. Then again, Maybe Fincher should have directed it. Maybe Sorkin should have written it. I don't know. It's just one of those things where it just doesn't doesn't all come together. But individually, it's 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 a quite a a decent thing to admire. I think the like cops and the government officials in this movie. It's a very complicated thing. Um, like everybody likes to say that whenever like with with Mangrove, for example, I was reading a lot of the Mangrove reviews because I really enjoyed that one. And that's also a courtroom drama, so I felt like I should probably bring it up. But I think Steve McQueen did that one like a lot better. And I maybe it's because like Steve McQueen is clear about like the side he's on. So in Mangrove, all of the cops are like bad. None of them are like sympathetic characters. Like they're like constantly raiding uh the mangrove restaurant and like beating these characters and harassing them on the streets and then with trial of chicago 7 there are points where aaron sorkin tries to make these cops sympathetic characters and i don't think it works and i say that as somebody whose father is like a police officer so it's very hard for me to like get behind the like acab things and all these because like well my dad's not a bastard i think he's a nice man but I don't think you can do that with the trial of the Chicago 7 because of how terrible 
all of those cops were. There's a point where Aaron Sorkin, like one of the characters points out like, oh, how many of those cops do you think had like kids over there in like Vietnam? And I was like, well, why does it matter? Because their, their job is to make sure that their kids stay over there. So like, why should we feel sympathetic to them? They're, they're actively making sure their kids stay over there and getting like shot and killed and dying for a proxy war that is stupid and useless. They're just over there killing Vietnamese people and getting killed for no, absolutely no fucking reason. So maybe, maybe that's why Mango works so much better than Trial is because Aaron Sorkin tried to make the cops sympathetic and it doesn't work here at all. Can I just add as well, Lean, on that yeah. note, and I think it's really interesting, is that what this film fails on is that this is not a conscious decision for him to have that topic. That's not a, that's not a pull away to, to come from here and have like an organic conversation. It's like, well, Sorkin does provide, that, you know, maybe these police officers are doing this because they have children in Vietnam. That's mm-hmm. us coming away from it because it's an, it's an insult to injury what this film um, projects. It's not Sorkin consciously putting that. I just need to make that mention mm-hmm. because I think, it, and what we're saying is 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 is, is a lot of, uh, well it, it's not Sorkin consciously sort of abiding by that notion of having a, a a brooding pot of discussion and I don't think that would even be appropriate regarding the film anywhere and I think you're right Alina it's like if if you're going to pre- present that but then not give any sort of character depth to the reason why and just have them these people all as and I'll say it again I don't want to keep on saying it but the, these people as bastards and then for that, for for him to then just sort of make those that that comment regarding his screenplay, it just feels so out of place. It's like, whoa, I've been taken back, but not in the manner where it's like, oh my god, I feel so sorry for these people as well. It's like you can't have a throwaway comment and then expect what an audience member to be like to change their thought process. You've been bombarding the audience for two hours about about how this government regime is essentially like a, a, a fascist regime where the freedom of speech, freedom of travel, freedom of, of thought has been taken away. You can't then come about and say that this and this and this and this is, is because of the reasons why. I just think that, that, that's, I think it's very narrow-minded and I think it's actually quite insulting for, for a writer of Sorkin's calibre to have done that. Um, mm. and, and again, like you said, I, I don't want to keep on doing this because I, I, there's a, like a fleeting feeling where the more I talk <laughs> negatively about a film, it just makes everyone miserable. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot to come out of this and be like, yeah, it, it, it's it's well executed for what it is. But it's but like like you said, Alina, the more the more you're thinking about it, the more that you you sort of becoming slightly more less optimistic. Let's say for me, mm. I just feel like I, I, I'm on that road now where I'm actually quite I'm, I'm very disappointed in this. Let's say because everything is here individually to make an ensemble, and, and all the, all the recipe is here. But it, you know. It, Sorkin's baked a cake and it's fallen through its ass. It just hasn't really worked. It hasn't been give, given the love. It hasn't been given the, the, the strict amount of measurement to, to have been able to sort of uh, to, to, to grow and have its own little life and, 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 be, and be raised. At the end of the day, that boils down to A, the screenplay, and B, the direction, who both fall on its ass of Aaron Sorkin. And what makes it more, more complicated is that this, is, this has been thrown about being this you know, wait for the Oscars. Wait for the Oscars. It's gonna, it's gonna just fleet up. I know Diego's unfortunately not here at the moment, but this isn't Diego's number one pick for the twenty twenty one or twenty twenty Academy Awards, whatever. To me, I think that is that that is. I, I'll be on the fucking moon before this wins an Academy Award in the realm of acting. I really do. I, I just don't think this is a. I think Mank will probably take it, and I think Netflix will push Mank before all else because they need that after Roma. But I just don't think this is something that will 
if it gets nominated, there'll be there'll be two nominations. It will be it'll be Frank Lagella, won't it? It just will be because of his stature, because of his legacy. It'll also probably be Jeremy Strong, maybe Baron Cohen, and then maybe Rylance as a support. But I don't think any of them are deserving of that Academy Award, considering we haven't had a particularly good year this year for obvious reasons. But I also don't think that there's a lot here regarding a screenplay that gives them that credit, you know, credentials to be given that platform. I will be very surprised who actually gets nominated. If any of this is nominated, I will be fucking shocked. That being said, this is the same Academy that give Rami Malek an Academy Award and it gave sound design and stuff. So again, it's difficult to sort of be hyperbolic and make assured statements, but I will just say this. This is not the film that needs to be applauded in, 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 in this uh, time. I think during this time about freedom of speech and about, you know, I think, again, not to drive, I think One Night, One Night in Miami is a similar film that falls foul to the same issues that this does. But I think a film that's, that's been out for five years now, which is I'm Not Your, Your Negro, I think that is a film that has to be applauded now, that has to be seen. That will do far more politically and socially than this ever would. Because at the end of the day, this is a piece of entertainment. And it is, it is. At the end of the day, it is. It's about six fucking not Oscar, Academy Award winners or whatever it is, you know. It has these action stars. It has these franchise stars in a courtroom talking about, you know, monologues. It's meant to be entertaining, it is. I think a documentary, I keep on saying this, but I think a documentary needed to really be forceful with this. To take this subject matter and run a mile with it and be like, this is what happened. And I think you could you could probably have like a, you know, a, an ESPN 2020 uh, nine-hour TV show about this. And I think that's probably what is just and just deserved here because there's a lot of backstory that just isn't abided by. Uh, and ultimately, it's a film that really falls foul of not being able to choose the right subplots, the right character narratives, so on and so forth. And the list just keeps on growing and growing. And at the end of the day, it just reinforces the fact that this just isn't good enough for a Sorkin film or is this much sort of anticipated Oscar film. I would go go watch that documentary and or just go and, and read a book about this. I think you probably have more nuance there. But there's definitely a lot more out there that, that does a service to... Uh, Black Panthers to Black Voices to freedom of speech, freedom of travel, uh, the politics of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, that documentaries is something uh, above all else compared to, compared to this. I, I, I can genuinely, I, it's like what you said about the Oscars, I can genuinely see this not only getting nominated for it but winning screenplay. I really can. Because it, it has those moments in the court case especially towards the end uh, where the jury's not in the room Mark Rylance is shouting and Frank Langella is shouting back. It's those moments that they really like. And it's going to be one of those things that, if anything, it'll get nominated. And I think it honestly, I mean, maybe if Mank hadn't released this year, then I think it could have gotten Best Picture nominations as well. I think it's one of those films. I don't, regardless of what we think of it, I think this is just sort of an Academy Oscar Beatty movie. It, that's what it feels like. It's got yeah. all the right performances and all the set pieces for it. And it's all it's ripe for the taken more or less in regard to the Oscars. I, c- I can see it picking up a few come awards season. I agree with you. I don't, I don't think it's a green book situation because that's, that's an entity in all of itself. But I do think that it's very, I can see what you mean. You and I, 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 I don't get me wrong. I think it's a film that will probably pull something like that off. Cause I don't, I don't, 
I don't think anyone can take the academy seriously, even with these new uh, institutional rules. I think it's, it's, a, it's a full self-indulgent beast of itself. But I just think that, regard, I, I don't want to speak on Man because I haven't, we haven't seen it, but I, I just think it's, it just does, it just fucking screams Academy Award entity, doesn't it? And that's the problem with it, is that when something screams that it is or it isn't, I know that's easy to say, it's like, well, that's a, a silly thing, but what I mean by it is that it will either ride that all the way to the end and pick everything up, or it'll die of death the day of, of, of the, the month of November, of, uh, of October when it comes out. So it'll be either one of those two beasts. I don't know if it's technically too early to release this. I mean, it's going to have to go through five months of, well, three, three and a half months of official voting. Netflix are going to drum up the release of this against Mank, which is Fincher, Gary Oldman. I don't know. I mean, it, it, if, I, if I was in the office now at Netflix, I think that is, a, that is a question and an answer for all the ages here because this voting now, and I know this is, I think Roma was probably a dead set and it's, you know, what happened there, don't get me wrong, but I think this is the pinnacle now, the turning point of when Netflix can succeed with an Oscar. And I think Best Picture for these two to be pushed, it may be a bit too much for Netflix. I mean, get, don't get me wrong, it's good to have, you know, you know, two birds, one stone, you know, there's a, there's a higher chance of you getting it, but I think they'll want to put all of their uh, sizable market campaign in one of them. And I think regardless of what how what this is, it'll be Mank because of Fincher. That being said, Sorkin's, he's not, you know, it's not a, 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 a you know, a shadow of, of, of what the Academy Awards think of, of, of someone at that quality. So there's definitely sort of an idea, but I can just think if, if it's either going to be or not that Netflix will clean up with this and Mank or either of them won't probably see the light of day. I know that's a very strange comment, but that's sort of how I feel on Netflix at the moment. I think Trial of Chicago 7 is, I think it'll go like decently far in the Oscars race because as I was watching it, uh, like, I, I did enjoy it as I was watching it, like I said, but a thought that kept popping into my head is, oh, this seems like a movie that my parents would like, and the, my parents are, like, in their 50s, like, they're not old, old, but it feels like a lot of the movies that, like, win the Academy Awards are, like, these are things your parents would like. Like, I remember we, we uh, film Twitter was upset about Bohemian Rhapsody, but my parents, they loved Bohemian Rhapsody, because they loved seeing Freddie Mercury. They love Freddie Mercury. They they love seeing Rami Malek on screen. Like that was amazing for them. It's probably the same thing as like all the Academy Award voter people and whatever. Like same thing with like this. And I think it's kind of too bad that this happened to come out this year because it's technically a Vietnam War movie as well. Same as like Spike Lee's to Five Bloods. And I think like this is overshadowing Spike Lee's movie which I think was better now unfortunately because again the Vietnam War is something that those Academy Award voters like most of them grew up with and that's an experience for them and it feels like they pick a lot of things that are like historical and that they remember you know what I mean yeah I mean Alina I don't think you're wrong I think I I, I, I sort of should apologize for even forgetting about the the five bloods but I think Mm -hmm. that's another thing that makes this more murky waters is what what did they do there do they push the five bloods which is an astonishing piece of cinema in its own right Mm -hmm. but you've probably got two nominations there you've got well you've got three you've got best director best picture and you've got Delroy Lindo as a as a best support with trial of Chicago 7 you've got best screenplay best writer 
that's best sorry, best screenplay, best probably adapted screenplay, uh, director, you've got best cinematographer, that's what it'll go for. And it'll get a, a whole load of assembled casts. With Mank, you've got best director, best picture, and you've got uh, probably uh, best actor with uh, with uh, Gary Oldman. So out of those two, out of those three there, it would be the, the trailer of, this, uh, of Chicago 7 that they would put forward regardless of those two because of the sheer amount of nominations they can get, which is frightening to, 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 to sort of begin with. But just to sort of touch upon that a little bit more, um, what do we feel now if this film was going to, so let's say Netflix does put this into the awards category, what do we feel that it's actually probably dead set of getting a nomination on? Like, I know, obviously I know that you can't make a, um, a statement like that just yet, but out of everything here, I feel like there's, there's probably two where I'm, I'm like scared of where I think Fran Langella will be best known for supporting nomination, best supporting actor, because it, it does have that statue to it. I also think that it will probably get the screenplay nod that you and said, I think those two I'm probably dead set on. I think Mark Rylance could maybe get a supporting too, because I really liked him. I guess Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen are technically like the leads in this, and I don't think, as much as I love Sasha, either of them are good enough to get the best actor. So I, I think it would only ever be supporting and screenplay. Yeah, supporting actor and screenplay. Maybe a couple of the, you know, like sound mixing, editing and stuff like that. Maybe a few nominations there, but I do think it has the potential to actually win a couple of awards, which is 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 a scary, scary notion. The one thing I think Sorkin's Mr. B on here, and I think Netflix will, is that when this was actually first made, I got this mixed up with another property, which is about a trial, which is about the, I believe, the, the, the five African-American kids in New York, which were tried on a rape charge that were sent to prison and found out to be telling the truth about how they were innocent. And it was, it's the same case where Donald Trump has said that we need to hang them in, in Times Square. And I know that there's, there is a, is it a, is it a documentary? Is it a narrative, a, a series of, about that case? I think it's a, I think it's a document. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a season show, so it must be a narrative. I feel like that is something in this day and age where that needs to be showcased, but not because of, not only because like it's social relevancy, but because of its connotations of what man, of what, one man has said about that case where you can have your political undertones and you can have them consciously and subconsciously and you can have a nuance with it and you can be very 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 conscious about what happened in that case which i think the, the series does full justice of but you can also have that political edge where that man who is in power made horrific comments in a national newspaper about hanging those those four or five boys who were like 11 to 17 in the middle on a public hanging I think that has so much more power to get the point across about who the vote will go for rather than this, because ultimately this is just saying, be careful of who you vote for because big governments, you know, on both sides is afraid to get its feet dirty. But at the end of the day, I just think that, yeah, don't we know that? I mean, I've just seen New Order at London Film Festival and it's, it's a very similar film to this in the regards of its politics where it doesn't provide any nuance. It just shows you how both sides are horrific and at the end of the day, both sides get fucked over by big government because they're meant to be there to protect you, but they don't protect the poor and they don't protect the, the, the rich. All they care about on either side is money. And it's, it's the issue that Franco's film has, very similar to Sorkin's film, is that 
if you're going to do that, then I can just read a book and I can go outside and see that. Like nobody gives a shit about the, the, the working class in this country. Nobody gives a shit about the blue collar uh, community in, in America. Although uh, the president in chief or disaster I should say thinks that those people are voting for him on that merging. It's because someone's come out there and said, we'll give them hope. And this film doesn't present that as hope as being a very difficult ideology because at the end of the day, anyone will do anything for hope. It's something that you don't actually have, but you can maintain of this spirit and this ideology of knowing that things will get better. And before long, those people turn sour on both sides of the political spectrum and just then become Trump supporters. Because why not? If nothing's ever gone good, good, if nothing's ever gone good for them, why should they ever give anything good for anyone else? And it's just one of those things where it's like a malice identity. And I think this is a film that doesn't even present that. I know that's going all the way back, but just reminded me, it's like this film doesn't present that. It's like, yes, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a left-wing argument where, you know, you either go for elections or you actually fight in the street for what you believe in. And ironically, we're going to see both of those things this year. Um, which hopefully will, will get changed. So there is like a social rele- relevancy within this film and, and this, but I just think it's the one thing we probably shouldn't be pushed more. And I think the, 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 the documentary about those five boys, I think that needs to be something be put out to the, to the world a little bit stronger than this does. Because at the end of the day, we all know the tragedy of, of, this, of governments and how they aren't here to protect us, but it's not about that at this day and age now, because, I think everyone to a certain degree can understand that's that, that's reality. The issue that provided here is that it's the other that we've we've got a high identity now of nationalism, both in the US, both in the UK. And what happens with that is that you look at the other as, as the opposing figure of you're taking where I live, which is so much further from the truth of regarding immigration. But these people saw these they automatically presumed the stereotype that these four boys or five boys, I do apologize for getting it wrong, uh, had raped this young woman in, in this in this Central Park. Central Park Five is, that's where I got mixed up with uh, Trials Seven, and how on every national newspaper, it was just a condemnation of these four boys or five boys, should I say, uh, but the presumption of innocence against because they were black. It's simple as that. Like I, 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 my sister's seen it. And she says that in the show they're not even provided lawyers or legislation when they're actually interviewed, and one of them just breaks because it's a fourteen-year-old boy who wants to go back home to his mom and dad. And you know, you've you've got that identity now where you know you've got someone in charge who's got relevance with that. And I know I'm repeating myself here, but just indulge me. Is that you can have a political message there, and then you can have a, a, a you can be a, you can have an activist piece. This might have a political message, but it's not the activist piece he thinks it is. And I think it's quite soft in that regard. And I know I keep on saying that, but I just think that I'm more disappointed as time goes by because this had a real charge and a real, you know, you could have had a fucking exclamation mark and then the day just has a full stop. And I just don't think if you're going to make an activist or political, political film now, you either have to go full end with it. I mean, it's the issue that House of Cards had, is that House of Cards, regardless of what that piece of shit did, is that it couldn't continue in our social construct because things in, in actuality were emerging and being, rep, being replicated in, in uh, fiction. And the issue with that, like I said earlier, is that cinema is this medium where you can get lost in, in the unbelievable. You can have a film like The Joker happen and you can take over that social commentary if, if you need to and you can understand it. We can 
delegate it we can look at incel culture but when you've got someone who's going into a, a cinema and shooting up people who is wearing that costume that's where the lines blur and it's an issue where again it goes back to the old argument of is film and video games influential on, on youth i don't really think that's appropriate here but i just think that and, and on that topic the other side of that conversation is that you, you need to sort of go either full in with it now or not sort of just test the waters and if it does have repercussions for good or for bad i mean i don't know i just don't know where we go with that i mean it's, it's getting to the point now where there's going to be a lot of stuff politically socially where we're not going to be able to put it into a film and have like a conversation about it anymore which is a bit is a bit worrying to be honest on a more thematic and and cultural standpoint but i, I think that what i'm trying to get here is the fact that this film thinks it has the power to, to to make an audience member think about who they're going to vote for. And I don't think that could be any... Well, I think that could be any further from the truth. I, I know my political standpoints. This film does not influence me whatsoever. Whereas the documentary about, you know, the, the um, Central Park 5, that is a film that will stay with me forever because it's fucking haunting. This is just none the wisest. a bit of entertainment shit I can watch on a Sunday with my, my mom and dad and it'll get nominated for an Oscars, you know? That's all it is at the end of the day, and I think it's such a subpar entertainment. The more I think about it, the more I just get pissed off. On that heavy note, <laughs> to round out ClapperCast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Uh, Ewan, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'm going to... I reviewed this for Clapper, actually, and it's only just came on Amazon Prime. So I thought... Um, it's, it's called Never Be Done, the Richard Glenlet story. It's a documentary about a comedian from Canada called... Uh, Richard Lett, and it's his story of addiction. Uh, it's it's almost haphazardly accidental in how it documents his sort of rise and fall and second coming, and it 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 is amazing. It's probably the strongest documentary of the year, and it's it, it's on Amazon Prime now. So, what what it does to talk about addiction is better than anything I have seen in film, and I think that's it's really important as a documentary. Not not just because it it involves a subject that is likable, but also because of the commentary around it, and it breaks a few taboos about how we talk about addiction, and it's it's incredible. It really, really is great. I'll go. So I watched the Love Witch the other day, and I've been trying to watch like more spooky movies this month because I don't really watch much horror. So I'm trying to, you know, it's October. People watch horror horror in October. On this one, it wasn't really scary, but it was definitely like a Halloween movie. Um, I, I really loved it. It came out in 2016, but it feels like something that came out in the 1960s because it's like an homage to that era. And it's about this girl who becomes a witch after her like husband leaves her. And then so uh, she's just like trying to fall in love and like have a nice husband but her like witch spells and whatever keep just going wrong and she keeps like accidentally killing all these men. I just thought it was so, it was so freaking funny. Um, there's like, there's a lot of nudity. Uh, there's a lot of violence. I thought it was really fun. It seems like one of those movies that you either love it or you hate it, but I loved it. The makeup is great. The wardrobe is great. I loved all the productions on design. The only like bad thing about it is I found out the director's a turf. Um, so I'm not gonna say her name and I forget it anyway. Uh, but other than that, if you ignore that, it's a great movie. I have, I have two. I've got one that I'm going to mention very briefly because, and then the other one's a little bit of a 
a, a sort of a tongue-in-cheek one but i think with the context of the conversation i know i've harped on about a lot but i would i would go check out raul peck so i'm not your, your your negro i think it's an astonishing piece of uh, documentary cinema i think it's a narrated by samuel jackson it's based on an unfinished novel of james baldwin it's, it's just it's just one of those things that, again reference within uh, this film is james baldwin and i would think that anyone who wants to sort of read a bit more about what it is like to be uh, black in a country or in a place where you are the other i think it's an incredibly uh poignant and captivating piece of, uh, of cinema as well as literature if you can if you can find it the other one in a lighter note is that i think i need to sort of recommend something that's a little bit diluted this week so i'm going to go for a, a hubie halloween the adam sandler masterpiece on netflix because i watched it the other night with my mum and dad and it was just i mean the first five minutes of it there's just classic happy madison stuff and i was just waiting for the inevitable rob schneider to turn up uh no spoilers if he does on doesn't make sure you watch it um and just a nice little gratifying piece of knowing that Adam Sandler is just there to make no higher end budgeted artistic merit. And it's just something that someone can watch and still sort of enjoy the, the ideas presented and not come away and be frustrated anywhere, um, which I think is probably such a, a credit to him as, a, as a, a producer, writer, actor that he makes cinema where probably, you know, there's just no highbrow humour in it whatsoever. And I think it's quite indulging to watch on the other occasion, I think he's, Netflix has been quite murky. Um, I think Sandley Wexler is an absolute fucking atrocity to mankind. But I think, you know, the do-over and Hubie Halloween, there's something on merit there. Um, but yeah, definitely go watch that on Netflix this week. Don't watch uh, Trial of Chicago 7. Watch I'm Not Your, your, your Negro and go watch uh, this um, Central Park 5 and go watch Hubie Halloween. I'm sorry I did three and one there, but I just needed to get it off my chest. Okay. I second this Hubie Halloween recommendation. Yeah. Uh, we were, my boyfriend and I were taking bets about when um, Rob Schneider, David Spade, and the rest of them were going to pop up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Is so, good <laughs> Halloween bingo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Ewan? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at Ewan Gledel. And Jack? I'm also on Twitter and Letterboxd at, at Jack Luke Sharp. And... I, Alina, am also on all those platforms, and it's just my name again, Alina Faults. You can find all the latest releases of film and television viewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. We also have a letterbox that is at ClapperLTD, and we're starting up our Instagram soon, so keep your eyes out for all of that. Um, make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow us to be notified when the next episode of Clappercast comes out. Thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. Bye. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.